Welcome to another edition of Life of Brian, Mannix, that is, the podcast. With thanks to our good friends at Murcott's Driving Excellence, I'm Kevin Hillier. You're Brian Mannix. Apparently I am, Kevin. We'll, we'll have a check. All right. Are you? I'll just have a quick little feel. Uh, are, you, are, you a, are you a rock star? Oh. Gold, gold albums? Yeah. Pl- platinum albums? Yeah. Okay. Uh, number one songs? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, groupies? You know, some stages? Yes, occasionally. Okay. Occasionally. Right. Yeah, odd groupie <laughs> is, uh, is a uh, great reward. Outrageous backstage riders? Not outrageous, no. Not compared to a lot of other bands. Um, you know, a bottle of scotch and a slab of beer is not outrageous. Right. By yeah. any stretch of the imagination. The outrageous part is when some dickhead in the band says, oh, can we get some water too? <laughs> oh, get out of here. And if they do, I say, look, if you're going to drink water, at least get an empty beer can and pour it into that so at least you look rocking. Oh. You're ruining our image. Oh, it's just terrible. <laughs> you, Can yeah. we get some water yeah. or some soft drink, please? Oh, <laughs> get out. Is that when the band split up? Oh, irreconcilable just, differences? Yeah, you know, irreconcilable differences. It's normally over what's on the on the uh, rider. Yeah. You know, I want the M&Ms. No, we want another <laughs> bottle of scotch. Stuff the M&Ms. Hey, now you're putting together the Countdown Show, which you which you wrote. I can't believe it's not Countdown. That's the one. Mm. Now, well, when did you write this? And uh, and you bring it back for obvious reasons because people love nostalgia. They do, apparently. first came out in 1998, so I wrote it sometime before that. Yep. Probably took me about a year. It took us about a year to get it up. So um, probably 97 I started writing it. It was funny. When I first put it on, it got dreadful reviews. Everybody loved it. But, the, you know, the theatre people. So, oh. Uh, no, Ow. this is not proper theatre. Oh, no, 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 no. And... Um, and, you know, oh, it's rather sexist and it's all of this. Anyway, then 2009 we put the same show on. Oh, it's just hilarious now. <laughs> so what was offensive in 1998 is no longer offensive in 2009. Oh, well, hang on. What was not offensive in 2009 will absolutely be offensive now. Well, we're just, we're just looking at it going through the thing. And there's an interview with Michael Jackson that we have in the oh, show. Oh, no. We're not going to be able to use it. Yeah, no. And it's a pity because it's such a funny part of the show. But, no, for today's uh, audience, I don't think that'll be acceptable. Do you not go the Ricky Gervais uh, line and, and uh, Ricky Gervais's philosophy is you can do any joke you want to do as long as you're willing to suffer the consequences, whether they be good or bad? Well, look, you know, this was quite appropriate in 1998. But I have a feeling that if we put this Michael Jackson bit back in the show, then um, the it, show would, won't go it would undo a lot of the good <laughs> okay. work done in the rest of the show. Okay. So there'll be a few changes to the last one. Now, this is going to be mid-year-ish, I believe. Yeah, I think uh, end of July, I think we start. Uh, I think we start up in Brisbane at the QPAC and then uh, we do the Enmore, then the Palais and Adelaide and Perth. I think one of them's Her Majesty's, I can't remember. Have but. you cast it? Uh, well, luckily, I've got most of the people from the last version, so it makes okay. so it makes it easier to put it all together again because it's like, well, they know the show, so yep. great. But um, you know, it's a bit nerve wracking, you know, having to put on a big, big show. Well, uh, you're the behind the scenes. You're the producer. I'm now. The, yeah. Well, I don't like being the producer. I'm not really the producer, but I'm the writer and the director. But I tend to get 
involved in areas that I don't particularly want to get involved in, but, um, you know, sometimes you just got to do stuff to get it done. Okay. Well, uh, tickets will be going on sale. They're on sale now, Kev. Okay. They're on sale right bloody now. I cannot believe it's Countdown. What is it called? I can't believe it's not Countdown. It's not Countdown. It's not Countdown, all right? Let's just – Countdown was a show that's that um, promoted new – New music. Mm-hmm. This is a show taking the piss out of old farts, okay? <laughs> That's the big difference. Actually, so is this show. Um, right. No, it's not. I no, hang on. No, no, no way. No. That's a weird. Hey, yo. Considering, <laughs> no. <laughs> Considering that Andrew Ferris and Mark Opitz is our guest. Yeah. That was, that was a bit of a faux pas there, Kev. Murcott's driving excellence couldn't even get me out of that, be perfectly honest. No. Murcott's driving excellence would struggle to get me out of the accident I just caused. Yes. one three hundred triple five five seven six. That's the number. Murcott's.edu.au. Brush up your driving skills. Brush up someone else's driving skills. There's gift vouchers. Uh, if you uh, want to drop a subtle hint to someone about their driving cape, but nothing says you're not driving well than a Murcott's driving excellence voucher. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, that will be their catchphrase from now on. Now, I, we mentioned we have got two great guests. Mark Opitz, part two a little later on. Oh, yes. The story of lovers in the air. Oh, it's a good story it's too. It's a great story. Yeah. Uh, and also uh, we, we talk about the cold chisel, the whole meeting of cold chisel, yep. how that all came together and how uh, they, they sort of work together all, and we'll get we'll just get to the precipice oh. of the in excess years. Okay. But we didn't think we'd put that in this episode because no. we've got a real live member of in we've excess. We've got a real, well, yeah, how about that? Yep. You know, not we're not just talking about in excess. We've got one. Yes, exactly. Andrew Farris, uh, the uh, the major songwriter in the band, to be honest. Well, him and Michael. Yep. Yep. Uh, all the big songs he wrote them. Uh, he's got a solo album out, and we've got him to have a chat about it. And it's a good solo album. Yeah, it is. Too. I really it is. like it. We're going to play a couple of songs off uh, off the album. Run, baby, run will be the first one, and we'll play another one to finish uh, this podcast off. So sit back, relax, and enjoy, Andrew Farris. All right, I will. Brian and Kev. Hey, it is. Andrew, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm great, actually. Yeah. Let's talk about the album. Are you nervous about this kind of like a, you know, a first-time thing for you? I'm a bit nervous about playing live. I'm not really nervous about the album. I've actually been living with it for a while. Um, I was sort of due to put the album out around about this time last year, but because of COVID, it just everyone went crazy around the world, and everyone's worrying about their health and their families and their jobs for good reason. They weren't worried about Andrew Farris's album, uh, but I was because I wanted to put it out. You know. Yeah. Look, the, the album's been a, a long time coming. I, I see that you started tracking it in 2011, and some of the songs are written 30 years ago and 15 years ago. So it's it's been a long time coming. Yeah. I've always worked like that my whole career. I'm a songwriter. I always have been, and and I even in you know going back a long time, I always worked that way. Um, even during you know the height of an excess's career. I would pull out songs I'd written before and they weren't just for that album. I'd, I'd already pre-written them, but I just didn't think they suited the other album that we had at the time. This part of my, my, my songwriter you know, makeup as a person. And so some of the songs that on my album that's coming out, yeah, I've written some of them quite a long time ago and other songs uh, were written quite recently, actually, um, around about the time that I, I started finishing the actual album off. But my journey with the album really started as a songwriter and I wanted to track the songs uh, better than the rough demos, some of them that I had. They were really rough and I knew the songs were good. I just wasn't happy with the recording quality. 
And uh, that was how really I began to start making my own album because I was recording the songs and the nearest singer I had around was me. Uh, and I thought, well, uh, <laughs> and then as I started recording my own vocals, someone, well, this, this will be finished when I can find a good singer. To sing them, you know? And then I think it was in Nashville when I was tracking there and a couple of the um, studio staff said, what's wrong with your voice? You know? And I said, well, I don't know, it's me. You know? And they said, well, we like your voice, man. Just keep singing. You know? <laughs> and that's, and, then, and I guess that was interesting too because they didn't have any real preconceptions being country music guys about my background or my career, you know, in a band and all this other stuff. They just listened to it on face value and that gave me a lot of sort of confidence that I needed to keep going. And that's really where my journey started. Hey, Andrew, when you write a song, do you write it with a voice in mind? Uh, uh, like when you're writing uh, In Excess stuff, were you thinking of Michael? And when, uh, when you're writing this solo stuff, are you now thinking of your voice singing it or how does that process work? Yeah, well, that's a really good question. I mean, in the old days, uh, when I was working especially with, with Michael uh, as a songwriter, a lot of people may not realise Michael didn't actually play an instrument. His instrument was his voice and he's an amazing lyricist. And, and you know, and he could sing like nobody's business, you know? Yeah. He's an incredible singer and stage performer. But when we went to write together, you know, I was very fortunate because being, I had been classically trained on the piano and then I, I taught myself to play guitar. I still don't know where all the notes are exactly on the fretboard, but I just, if I like what I hear, I keep playing. Um, same with rhythm, feels and riffs and grooves or whatever. But when it came to writing with Michael, I, I used to, it was interesting because the two of us were not competitive. Now, if you stop and think about it for a minute, if he had played an instrument and I also write lyrics, it would have been more competitive where he would have been saying, look, I've already got a song. And I'd say, yeah, well, I got a song too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But we didn't work like that. Most of the time it was it was a really harmonious relationship because we both needed what the other person was doing. I think of it a bit like epoxy glue, right? Uh, for anyone that's ever mixed any epoxy glues, they know it, it takes two kind of uh, strain to make the glue stick. Yeah. And that's the way I think of it with a song. Sometimes the other input that another songwriter puts into what you're doing makes the thing really powerful because it's the combination of force, if you like, or, or, or musical energy and, and thought pattern and lyric or whatever that, that really makes for some really amazing songs. This um, Run Baby Run, it sort of uh, drives a little bit down Country Street. Is, is, is country music something you've always liked? Sure. Uh, I mean, in the old days... Again, I'll, I'll go back to that and saying that I've always been into country music, um, I, particularly when I was a little kid and I grew up in Perth and I had a little transistor radio I used to listen to under the pillow at night. I don't think mum or dad knew I was doing that, but in those years, it was on AM radio, 6pm or 6PR, I think was the station, radio station. They'd play all kinds of music. They'd play country music. You'd go from Slim Dusty and then they had a bit of rock and roll, might have been yeah. the Beatles or whatever bands it was back then. Uh, uh, could have been Credence or something. And then you might go to classical music or pop or something. And I grew up as a little kid thinking, well, that's what all radio stations are like. They don't segregate. There isn't just country over here and there isn't rock and roll over there. There's not classical over here. It's all on the one station. You know, if I can steal something there from Bob Dylan, I'll quote him. I think he said that he grew up uh, listening to country music, but he always thought that, uh, rock and roll and blues, they were all like cousins. They're all the same family of music. I thought it was really interesting. 
because I look at it a bit like that too. Like I think that they are all interrelated in a really strange way and not so strange at the same time. It's a natural way as well. Yeah. Yeah, I see Steve Tyler did a uh, country album. His, his explanation for that was he thinks that country is the closest thing to rock at the moment because, um, you know, a lot of music yeah. isn't rock and so he made a country album and um, he felt that, that was more like rock and roll than um, what, a, lot, a lot of other music that's being made. So, you know, good on you. And who did the artwork because the artwork's terrific. It's great. Thank you. I appreciate that, yeah. Now, we, uh, my wife and I, Marlena and I, uh, have a – a good friend out of the U.S. because my wife's American. We have a good friend of ours. Uh, her name's Kiki Kiana. She did actually did the, the artwork and stylization of a lot of it, and we put a lot of thought into that too. It wasn't just like, "Hey, I've got some songs. Let's just throw them onto us, you know, onto a, and call it an album, and we'll just stick a picture of me on it." It wasn't quite that simple. We actually thought a lot about the presentation of all of this, and um, you know, Kiki was an, an awesome. She's actually, you know. An artist in her own right, she 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 paints at a really high level. And hey, we've been talking about the, the the concept you've got of the album being an album, being a vinyl album, having an yeah. A side and a B side, and a That's right. and a kind of tracking thing through it. It's a throwback to to you mentioned, you know, listen to the radio uh, under your pillow and stuff. It's a throwback to those days, isn't it? When you'd get the album and you'd live the album, you wouldn't just play a song off it; you'd actually live the whole album from go to woe. Well, yeah, that was you're right. That was my thinking, and. When COVID kicked in around about this time last year, like many other people, you know, threw a curveball at my life because everyone was worried about their health and their families and their friends and, and their jobs, you know, and they weren't worried about Andrew Farris's album for good reason. But Andrew Farris was a bit worried about his album. So I was, uh, and I don't live along the coast. I live inland and I live about 110 kilometers northwest of Tamworth. And I've been through a really terrible drought uh, in this area with local communities and on my own farm. And I, I've been through now a severe drought and I have a lot of empathy for people who go through that sort of thing because I've lived it. The best thing about last year is it's been great rain out here, which has been great for the communities. All that had a part of my journey, believe it or not, to make my album where when I first started making recordings, you know, like I was telling you before, I was tracking older songs that I'd written and newer ones. I also had written some newer ones. And I started tracking them just because they, they were rough demos, you know, whether they were on an iPhone or, or wherever they were, old tape, whatever it was, or, you know, old digital mediums, I don't know, whatever they were. Yeah. And But along the way, I think it really occurred to me that it wasn't so much me making an album. It was more about what do I want to be representing lyrically what what do i want to say you know and that's where my journey joined the dots in my mind when uh my wife and i took a horse riding trip down to the mexican border did i tell you about that no no you haven't well what happened was yeah like i like i told you guys that i i started re-recording some demos and both new recent ones and older ones much older ones and mid older ones whatever you want to call it yeah and um Along the way, somewhere I started tracking not only at my, my farm studio where I live, uh, but also in Nashville because my wife's American. She was about, uh, well, her family come from Dayton in Ohio, which is about five and a half hours drive from, from Dayton to Nashville. And so me being a songwriter, you know, I started going to Nashville from Marlena's family's hometown. 
And, you know, because of my experience and my, and, and, and my reputation as a writer, I got to work with some great people and girls and guys and some known, some not so well known, um, some famous, whatever. But the point is that along the way, it occurred to me when I started writing especially new songs and that I started thinking more and more about my lyrics, about what do I want to represent and what am I singing about, you know? Yeah. Um, I didn't really want to make, in that sense, I didn't want to make a pop album. Um, I, I just, I suddenly started thinking more that, you know, in all charts, it doesn't matter what chart genre you're in or what genre of music, everyone wants to have a chart hit. That's natural, yeah. you know? That's just what people want to do um, because it leads on to other things. And obviously, I, you know, I like to have a chart hit too with my, what I'm doing. <laughs> but that where I was at in my head back then was very much, I started thinking, well, you know, what do I, what do I have to say to people? Who, who am I? What am I writing about? And it was that horse riding trip that Marlene and I took down to the Mexican border where the Chiricahua Mountains are. It's right on the corner of New Mexico and Arizona. And I met, uh, or Marlene and I had met an old cowboy wrangler called Craig Lawson and his wife, Tam. Well, this wasn't like a, a, an hour pony ride, you know, with a really nice meal afterwards. <laughs> we, rode for, we rode for six hours a day uh, through these national monument areas in the United States. Suddenly, I, everything started seeming very similar to me in many ways to what Australia is, especially Australia out in the bush and the countryside. And not, not that it looks the same, but it kind of feels the same in a sense. Where, And I, I began to realize the tumultuous history of that area where you had, um, you know, you had the uh, Chiricahua Mountains with the Apache Indians, you had the Mexicans, the Mexican Army, you had the U.S. Cavalry, you had the, um, uh, you know, uh, settlers, you had the cowboys up the road in Tombstone, you had the outlaws were running around with all this back and forth from Mexico, and everyone was chasing everyone around on horseback. You know, I stayed there for about a week doing these full-on sort of horse rides, you know, through these national monument areas. I know where Geronimo surrendered. I rode up to the top of Cochise's stronghold, and I, I could see where he could, up in the mountains, see where the U.S. Cavalry were trying to chase him. And I actually physically saw all this stuff. And when I went back to Nashville, I got in the room, as they say, as songwriters say, and they said, what do you want to write about? And I sort of nervously said, uh, I want to write about the Old West. And they're like, what? Hey, man, you know, like yeah. times have been yeah. gone. I'm like, yeah, I know. I know that. You know, I'm very aware of that. You know, And they kind of scratching their heads. And they said, sure, if that's what you want to write about. So I started writing about the Old West that I saw in America and drawing parallels too on my album is, you know, one of my songs is with the Kelly gang. Um, talks about early Australian uh, bush rangers and, and talks about the same sort of period of time. And the reason that I think this period of time is, is, is really relative to country music is because it was when European instruments were introduced into the cultures in Australia. You had, you had folk music coming in, bringing, you know, a violin would turn into a fiddle. And the same within the United States. Uh, a drum and a guitar you know, could be put together to become a banjo. Um, all these instruments and upright pianos and all the rest of it that were coming to our young countries like Australia and, and America in, 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 that, in that new world sense, that these instruments were forming what became folk or country music. And then that had a kick-on effect into people, in, into cowboy culture and all this other stuff. 
that was very relative. It was all mixed in together. And I saw myself suddenly, I thought, I know how to make an album now. I know what I want to do. And, I, and it kind of gave me an almost, if you pardon the expression, an existentialist moment where I suddenly could get out above myself and look at the whole thing as an album, like an old school idea, not just, yeah, I've got 12 khaki songs. I think I'll put them on the chart. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't right. about that, yeah. you know? I, when I looked at it, I thought, I, know, I think I know how to do this, you know? And here we are. And you've done it in such a way where the, the kind of the second side of the album is, is sort of the, per, the really personal part of it, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. It's a bit more gritty and some of the subject matter, yeah, it's a lot, a little bit tougher, if I can use that word. You know, Apache Pass obviously talks about literally Apache Pass where we rode our horses through there. You know, you could still find lead bullets flying on the ground. Wow. Um, there's the old ruins of Fort Bowie. And there's literally, I think, uh, Geronimo's uh, son or grandson is buried there still in, in a grave. That's not a pop music subject. That's no. like, no. And you're right. And then same with Starlight, the song yep. that follows it. It's about my wife, Marlena's stage four metastatic breast cancer journey. And it talks about, you know, what we share together and every day is special to both of us. And then we have a place that we love to go on the property here that I live on called The Hill. And we just sit there and at night when it's clear, we watch the stars, you know, stuff like that. It's not really... We don't, I don't really care if it's pop yeah. material or not. I, I, I don't care about all that. Well, cl- that that's clearly is, Evelyn, Andrew, because you've got a mariachi yeah. band in that song. <laughs> well, that, that, well, yeah, because after the guitar riff, it played along and I thought, you know, I was listening to it and I thought, hmm, you know, there's a little gap and a hole there. And even though I love the baritone guitar, like, you know, old school sort of heavy country riff thing, and I thought, I wonder if I can get that in there. And when I, when I, I actually tracked that uh, in Sydney after I tracked the other stuff in Nashville. And then I, I got it remixed again in, in Nashville. And the guys there liked it too. Uh, they thought that was cool. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm also trying to pay homage and respect to older school country music. I love, uh, don't get me wrong, I like a lot of modern country stuff. Uh, I really do. And, but I also like the older stuff, you know. Yeah, I like Hank Williams and Ned Miller and Tom T. Hall and all of those sort of acts, not so much the new country because I reckon a lot of the new country sort of pop music with a cowboy hat and but I reckon, you know, Jim Reeves and uh, Johnny Cash, that's my kind of country. Look, there's horses for courses, if you pardon the expression. You know, there's a little <laughs> bit of everything for everybody yeah. in country music, you know, like I think. I think modern and, and old school is what is cool about it, actually. I, I think I think where it would get weird, in my mind, is people saying the old country music's not relative to the new country music. That's what I'm trying to say. To me, it's all part of the same music. Yeah. You know, like in the end, you know, it, it, it really has its beginnings. Um, you know, uh, I mean, country music, rock and roll, and uh, blues. blues music are all cousins. They're all actually related, you know. Um, if you look back to Sun Studios, Elvis and Johnny Cash can be seen standing in the same studio, and yet one was country and the other one was rock and roll, and yet both of them probably love blues. And my point I'm trying to make is it doesn't matter to me in, in a country music sense whether the music's necessarily really old or really new. Um, it's, what's important to me is that the songwriting and the culture of country music remains intact. 
that to me I find really interesting because I think, you know, it, it, you, you guys would know, you know, I, I seriously have competed internationally with pop music. You, you know my career, you know yeah, what I've done. Well, mm, sure. And I know all about charts and all that stuff. But to me, to me, one of the things I really love about country music is that it's kind of open-minded when it comes to songwriting. And I think that is a real key to its success, you know. The fact that you've been able to take a song that you started work on 30 years ago and make it relevant today sort of says that. Yeah, thanks. I think it's uh, Willie Nelson. He went to Jamaica and recorded some Jamaican songs. Really? Uh, I think jo- oh, yeah, wow. I think Johnny Cash did too. I think Johnny Cash had a, had a, had a home in, in Jamaica too or something. But I always thought that's curious too. Most people would, would never have thought of those two guys as being into reggae. Oh. But actually, if you go and check Willie Nelson's stuff out, he did record quite a bit of reggae. Right? He, in fact, he recorded a whole reggae album. He's, right? pro- he's probably just well, trying to score some grass down there. <laughs> got caught up in the studio. Well, well, mate, he's in the right place, isn't he? Yeah, <laughs> I don't think he, I don't think Willie does much without a joint. But um, God bless him. <laughs> hey, Andrew, yeah, what, what what are the live shows going to be? How are you, how are you structuring the live shows? Um, yeah, no, look, I'm really excited about the live show part of what I'm doing and I've got an awesome uh, band of musicians that are playing with me. They really are, you know, amazing. Uh, also, Andrew Swift is coming out uh, on, on the same tour and Andrew's just, co- you know, he just hosted the, the Tamworth Country Music Awards and he's a golden guitar winner. He's had number one hits and that sort of thing on the country charts and he's an awesome performer, songwriter, and he's a friend of mine. And I'm really excited about that too. Like I, I get to share this with, with people who are like-minded. And to me, that's another thing I find exciting is that I, I'm not, uh, it's not a competition to me. I'm just, no. I'm just really excited to be part of a, a music genre that wants me there. Yeah. yeah. Will you share the same band, you and Andrew, or it, he'll have his band and you'll have your band? That's a good question. Um, I don't mind if some of my players want to play with Andrew. It doesn't really bother me at all. Um, I, I think um, it's funny you should mention that. I was actually wondering that myself yesterday. <laughs> um, but I don't mind if he wants to. It doesn't bother me at all. Uh, he's a good guy. He's a friend of mine. Cool. Yeah. What sort of reaction are you expecting from the people who know you from In Excess to, to the album's release? The, the Run Baby Run's released now. What sort of reaction are you expecting from the, the hardcore In Excess fans who know you? Well, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I've, I've talked about this a bit with, with a few different people and I, and I I love my brothers, uh, Tim, John, and and, and and my friends and really brothers too, Gary and Kirk. And unlike a lot of that bands in the past, we, we don't have issues with each other. We get on well. And we went to hell and back on our journey uh, to, to do what we did. And the way I look at it is that I was a songwriter then. I'm a songwriter now. I, was, I loved writing for an excess, and I miss those guys. But they're not touring. And so I'm, when I get out now and I play my own music, you know, it's with some affection that I talk about them. I, I have no issue at all. And I, I loved all that music that we created. And we, we did so much touring. We worked in 52 different countries together. Um, we did things that were unbelievable, really, when I think back on it carefully. And perhaps I'll play some in excess during my set because I know that the audience will want to, they know my connection with it. And, mm. you know, I'm a, look, I'm a fan of in excesses too. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I like playing it because I like listening to it. Well, you know, you wrote it, so yeah, why, exactly why, why can't right. you play it? Jeez. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, well, yeah, you know, like I, I give credit there to the other guys in the band too. Like 
they all contributed, you know, both on and off stage to, to in excess of music. And some of them, you know, obviously are songwriters in their own right, and they are good people and an awesomely talented group of musicians. You know, I'm a fan of them. I know it sounds weird, but they, they are they are a really highly talented group of people. Hey, the clip for Run Baby Run, you shot in Gimpy. I was playing the Gimpy Master at the Country Music Festival there. Okay. And I was nervous as I got to admit because it was the first big festival I'd played as, as a solo, or oh, solo artist and country artist. But it was this, uh, Mary, uh, sorry, the Mary Valley Rattler steam train pulled in with all these carriages. And they spent a huge amount of money and time, these, these uh, volunteers. And the thing just looked gleaming. It looked, it looked beautiful, was the word I'd use, pulling into the station there. And I hadn't expected to see that. I think I was seeing there getting a, a cup of coffee or something, and this thing arrived snorting and breathing steam everywhere and little kids and mums and dads were everywhere they were all excited too and well I spoke to the engineer and he, he knew who I was and and I said oh look you know I'd love to come and have a closer look at the train well I've been thinking about making a video you see with a steam train and I thought oh that'll never happen it's too complicated <laughs> too, too, you know I forget about that and then somehow it ended up turning around they let me play with the train for a day Oh, and, um, beautiful. Yeah, and so that's what the video is. It goes with Run, Baby, Run. It's basically, uh, we shot that on the uh, Mary Valley Rattler, and it's about a girl who's trying to escape from a big, heavy dude, and he's chasing her through the train, and, and um, at the end, I kind of rescue her with some modern, weird, you know, back <laughs> to the future device. And then oh, I, what I wanted to do was jump out of the train cab onto a horse. Oh, oh yes. but, that'd be beautiful. <laughs> Um, didn't do that. Uh, that didn't go down well with anybody. So I did ride horses in the video at the very end. I'm riding a horse alongside the train. and But, yeah, that was quite – what I really wanted to do was run along the, the carriages, too, like in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kids. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, when he runs along the roof of the carriages while the train's running. That's what I really wanted to do, but they wouldn't let me. I don't know why they wouldn't let me do that either. Did they let but, you um, tie a girl to the tracks? <laughs> That's always popular. No, I, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't do that. The bad guy did. Why have I got there's a train coming and then rattling yeah, in the back right. of my head right now? Remember that? Help me, help me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's it. Yeah, um, yeah so exactly. Now, well, I'm glad that I'm glad I've got a laugh out of you. And once you see the video, I think you'll have a long laugh. So it's a pretty good video. Well, oh, I, reckon, I reckon when Clint Eastwood hears this album, he's going to want to make a movie based around it. Yeah, well, funny you should say that because not about Clint Eastwood, but um, actually Clint Eastwood gave one of his old cowboy hats to Michael, and that's a true story. But, oh, um, no. Yeah, but I, I like to know where that hat is. And seriously, though, all of the videos I've been trying to make, I've been using that theme of, of, of the Old West or most of the videos for the album, and it has that theme running through it where if you put them all together visually, they look like a little film. Yeah, great. Um, because I think it's just a really romantic era. Oh, that era. absolutely. I'll, I'll be honest with you. Well, as mm. you put your gun in your holster and uh, jump on your white horse and ride off into the uh, distance, Andrew Ferris, thank you so much for your time. We've really uh, we've loved having a chat, mate. Just one tip. In your next video, bit of spaghetti western dialogue. <laughs> just move your mouth up and down and dub something <laughs> in later. <laughs> all right, mate. <laughs> um, well, it's Brian and, and, and Kev's good to talk to you. And all, all I can say is, as you head off down the trail where the horizon meets the sky, safe travels. A million miles an hour.
the sun Chasing down forever Run, baby, run That is Run Baby Run, and we'll play another track off the uh, the CD a little later on. It is available now, and uh, good songs. Really good. He's sort of yeah. driving down Country Street a little bit with this yeah. one, although it's still got a few of those little in-excess touches there. But yeah. uh, no, I think it's a really good album, and what a nice fella. Yes, absolutely. What a nice fella. Absolutely. As is uh, part two of our next guest, uh, another good fella with great stories to tell. Oh, yes. Uh, and these are these are beauty. You're going to hear about uh, how uh, the whole cold chisel, uh, Mark Opitz uh, union happened, mm-hmm. but we're also, we haven't finished with the Albert years yet. No, not quite. We're still with Harry Vander, George Young, and more importantly, John Paul Young, in this, the second part of our chat with Mark Opitz. You know, I got to work on Power Age with ACDC, which was just unbelievable. You know, yeah, just again, George, Harry, and I working on the connoisseurs, ACDC connoisseurs' favourite album of all time, Power Age. 
you know, you ask Keith Richards' favourite album, Power Age. You ask Gene Simms' favourite album, Power Age. You know, like, well, which got me a lot of cred with, with people like those guys, you know, when, I, when you meet them. But, yeah, so I got, and then obviously, you know, other ones with Alberts that went well, like one of the greatest things I was ever involved with, with Alberts. One day, you know, as usual, it's a Monday, Harry and I are sitting in the control room. Harry's sitting to my left, feet up on the console, reading his mail. In the, in the door walks George, you know, okay, this is what we're going to do this week. We've got to do a, a, a follow up to South Africa. We've got to hit with yesterday's hero. So we've got to do a, a, a follow up to that. And we've had a surprise hit in Germany with a, a B side called Standing in the Rain. Uh-huh. So uh, we've got to do, we've got to do a follow up for that for Germany. Okay. We'll start with the German one first. Okay. Mark, get the loop for standing in the rain off the wall. It's over there. It's a six one from the left in a big tape loop. So I put the tape loop on a tape machine. He goes, oh, babe, I saw you standing in the rain. But it didn't have the singing on it like that, which the male's melody. But it, but it had the And then so that's just playing along. And George is sitting next to me by this time on the console with his tiny two-octave cord organ with buttons on it to play at chords. And he's coming up with this little da 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 da, just an ascending chromatic scale, basically. In I can't remember what that key it's in, but just doing that. And while I'm and he says, "Harry, Harry, get the songbook out. Give me some titles." And so Harry gets this tattered old exercise book out from behind the couch. And Harry started reading out, you know, titles. Um, you know, and going da da da. Uh, yeah, you blow my mind. No, no, fuck that. That's no good. I wish you were here. No, 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 that's that, that's no good. Love is in the air. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love is in the air. That's oh, good. Yeah, we'll, 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 go, we'll go with that as a working title. And, and this is like 10 o'clock in the morning, right? Oh. By 9 o'clock that night, George has got, I can still see it, the phone pressed up against his ear by his shoulder, and he and Harry have both got notepads out, and they're writing lyrics to Love is in the air. And on the phone is John Paul Young, you know, nine o'clock at night. Hey, John, have we got a song for you to come in and sing? Can you get in the half an hour? You know, and John, you know, John came in. Yeah, what do you got? And so, you know, they were playing the backing track. And then the lyrics are sort of done by that stage by the time he's got there. And then John went out into the control room where I'd set up a mic and maybe three takes, you know, and, and um, maybe four takes. And then obviously edit that, those takes into one take. And, John went home. That was it. So we walked out there at, at you know one o'clock in the morning with Lovers in the Air in the can, except it hadn't been mixed. The problem with Lovers in the Air was we, we there was no automation in mixing in those days, no mixing in the box, you know, no yeah. automated faders, nothing. And so we it took us three weeks of mixing, and every time we'd mix it, you'd have to start again, or you you know you put that tape down. You still got the basic mix there. Okay, a little bit more high hat in this one. Do another mix. Oh, doing these minute changes to every mix. And of course, to us, they're massive changes because we're so into the song by this stage. So yeah. we can really hear every tiny change. And the minutiae is what we're listening to. And then after three weeks, George says, fuck it. You know, we can't pick a mix. Uh, Mark, get all the cassettes, put them in a cardboard box, take them up to Ted Albert's office and get Ted to pick one. Okay, so I loaded them all up, put them in a box. Walked up the seventh floor of Albert and King Street into Ted's oak panelled office. And as I said, 
great guy, Ted. Cruel but fair, but a lovely guy. I could always walk in anytime, sit down, talk to him about anything. Sailing, you name it. And but anyway, so I walked in with this box of tapes. And I said, oh, look, the boys want you to pick the mix because, you know, we're having trouble because we've been doing it so long. He said, yeah, okay, Mark, just leave it here. You know, saying so this, like, you know, 40 cassettes in there or maybe more, I don't know. And which, you know, which would take anyone like a week to listen to, right? 20 minutes later, Ted walks into the studio with one cassette said, yeah, this is And I'm again, and we, three of us, of course, looked at each other, knowing there's no way in the world he's listened to every like, song. But, you know, he played it, and now, of course, we hear what he's playing with fresh ears because he's playing it to us. And we don't, we're not hearing it in the minutiae. We're hearing now in the big picture. Uh, yeah. And it was a very good, it was a great lesson for Harry, George, and particularly myself. Never lose sight of the fact that the song is the most important thing. He was able to hear it with that clear head and just listen to the song. And that was the important thing. And so, and that's basically the story of Love is in the Air. Where did you go after Albert's? Well, after Albert's, George and Harry by this stage, after I did a couple of albums with the Angels, uh, and uh, obviously I did Power Age with ACDC. After that, the Angels decided to sign a deal with Epic Records, which really upset Vander and Young and Ted Albert incredibly. All of a sudden, it's like my band was no more, so to speak. And the, and the Angels got in contact with me and said, look, you know, can you come and help us out with our next album called Dark Room? Yeah, and um, and they wanted to change the way it was all done. You know, they wanted to because it was Epic Records. Epic wanted to bring in a, an American producer called John Boylan. Oh yeah, he did to, Boston. That's right. Well, he sort of did Boston. Tom Schultz did Boston. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean. But, but um, but anyway, right place, right time. They wanted to do it with Epic, and they and basically. You know, he was going to be the producer instead of me, but they still wanted me to work on it with them, and I sort of wasn't doing anything. So I, I reluctantly agreed, but at the same time, I, I made bookings to you know, probably go to England, you know, and, and, and try my luck there. And before I did Darkroom, I got a call from David Sinclair at Warner Brothers saying, look, I've got this band, we've done two albums with them, and they, they haven't done anywhere. And I promised them two weeks in the studio, and could you go in for two weeks with this band called Cold Chisel? Uh-huh. And um, they'd done that to their self-titled album, Breakfast with Sweethearts, which you know didn't really satisfy them at all, and it, and both albums didn't really chart at all. But anyway, so I went in, into the studio, went to Paradise Studio, went in lockdown for two weeks with the band, and I they, they were fine to do it, but they'd already making plans to record an album. They wanted to record an album with Paul Rothschild, the, the Doors producer. Oh, yeah. So I, I got them in and we went through, and I, the first thing I did was uh, I, I press record on the, ta- on the tape machine. I said, now, play me every new song you got, and which they did. And, uh, and I recorded a bunch of songs. And after a few days, you know, it stopped recording. And, and I picked out one song called My Turn to Cry, worked that up and, you know, just worked it, worked it, worked it, and got this killer sort of rock track going and, and we were quite happy with it you know after three days and Jimmy and I were hanging out a lot by the stage and, and we went up to the Mansell room about midnight you know as you do oh, yes, and, um, yes. and, and, and we just talked to a few other people we bumped into Harvey James you know from oh, yeah. uh, Sherbert Sher- on the late and great Harvey James yeah. who I later used on Richard Clapton so we said oh have a listen to this you know and he put the headphones on he went that's, that's amazing 
that's going to be a great pop rock song, you know. But then Jimmy and I looked at each other and thought, you know, that's not what we want. You know, yeah, it does sound great to us in the studio, but having someone else listen to it, and, and we love Harvey, but the, Harvey's reaction to it was very positive, but wasn't positive in the way we wanted it to be positive. So the next day I headed back to the studio and I said, okay, forget my turn to cry, we've got to find something else. And after we'd done all this work building it up and everyone was a bit surprised, um, so I went through all the tapes again and I found the song Choir Girl, which was, you know, about abortion. Is and it? Said, well, and yet, see, this is what people don't know, Brian. No, I didn't know that. Everyone, if you listen to the lyrics and read the lyrics, you'll see find out. It's similar yeah. as like, in, you know, people make the same mistake with Run to Paradise. It's a song about heroin, you know, but everyone oh. just thinks, oh, it's a great song, you know. It's, it's a, a big song. song paradise. <laughs> yeah, Paradise is, is a euphemism for heroin. Uh. But, yeah, it's funny, isn't it, how people's great melody will always work in a great feel. But, you know, and lyrics sort of come second until you get left Bob Dylan. So we, I worked up Choir Girl and I used the Vandering Young techniques that I'd learned on, you know, backing vocals and arrangements, stuff like that. By the end of the, the session, I, I knew I had it, you know, the song I wanted. Yeah. And, uh, and I took it over, you know, a few days before Christmas to David Sinclair in, in 79, as I said, was head of A&R, played it then, he said, fantastic. As it said, we'll release this and, uh, and introduce Cold Chisel to the public, you know, mass public, as opposed to they already had a great live audience. It, it pushed them out to radio land. And, and that's always been my, my thing. You know, when I'm, when I'm working with someone, it's always been, you know, the balance of how do I keep the band's integrity and yet make it commercially acceptable at the same time. And, uh, and so we went in the studio and, to record uh, an album that would eventually be called East. Yeah. There weren't a lot of songs ready for it. So what I did, and, and, and Don Walker had been writing all the songs, and so I said to the, to the band at this stage, look, look, you know, I'm not going to roll tape again until we've got enough songs. So you, Phil, you go off to the text room and work on a song up there. Jimmy, you go off into the, another area up into Billy Field's office and, and work on stuff. You know, Don's already got stuff. Ian, you, you know, you work in this room here and I want all you guys to start writing working on songs and then then once you've got a song to a certain point seek someone else's help and get it moving after about a week we, we, we had about seven songs but that was enough to start we started you know songs that hadn't materialized by that time but writing sun hadn't turned up at that point oh, wow. uh, never before Ian Moss's song hadn't turned up at that point but, you know, Steve Presswich had come up with the Best Kept Lies and um, Phil Small was struggling a bit, so Mossy helped him out. And what Phil had mostly had three quarters of My Baby written, but then I put Ian together with Phil to finish it off. And anyway, we started recording and went recording was started obviously going really well. And after about a week, I got a call from the head of Warner Brothers and said, um, Listen, um, we want you to be head of A and R. We're going to sack David Sinclair. We want you to be the head of A and R. Whoa! Exactly, big call, huge call. Sort of feel it coming because of obviously success I've already had, and, and Choir Girl now is just beating up the charts. So I went into you know had a meeting. This is during the album because I didn't really want to do it. So I said to the managing director Paul Turner of Warner Brothers, "Look, <laughs> you know, I don't want to do it." And you know, and he said, "Well, you you come back, you, you come back and tell us what you need to be able to do it." 
And so I sat down with, you know, my accountant, who was sort of counseling for cultures or and the angels and a few other. And we sat down and, and worked out. We came up with this list of 22 things that I would, they'd have to fulfill before I would accept the job. Because I didn't want the job. And so we tried to make them as outrageous as possible. Uh, first one, I want a brand new latest model BMW. Oh. Uh, I want to be paid more than the Australian Prime Minister. Uh, I want a, I want a first class trip around the world, all expenses paid every year, etc., etc., etc. And and blow me down. The, did you ask for the green M and M's to be removed? From the <laughs> no, I, I, mate, I didn't go that far. Come on. Um, <laughs> but the uh, but basically, what happened was I went in with this list of you know, and with my accountant, and I went in and sat down with Paul Turner. And he agreed to every one of them, and so wow. uh, and so all of a sudden, I was head of A and R for Warner Brothers, and I was sort of two weeks into recording this album. Eat beauty of that was, of course, that I was signing the checks. So that was fucking cool. <laughs> oh, now, yeah. Yeah. now I had uh, you know I had unlimited studio time at Paradise Studio, which is the best studio in the country at the time, particularly Sydney, and I was able to do things like uh, uh, you know ordering. Dinner in a dash, which was a food order service from the best restaurants in Sydney. Uh, so we we would sit down every night, you know, at some point and have all this amazing food set in. And I also made it a rule that uh, no one was allowed in the studio except for the roadies, and and the roadies were welcome to come and have dinner with us every night. So every night there'd be the band, me, the uh, assistant engineer, and and the roadies. We'd all be up big time, having a great time, and basically creating an atmosphere of real friendship and and uh, a great you know environment that everyone could give their best. In. Towards the end of these, Jimmy's girlfriend Jane had gone to Japan, and so he. He was upset about that, so we went and wrote a song in about twenty minutes called "The Rising right, Sun." Sun, yeah. And then we, we and we he said, "I've got it done." And then we came down. Okay, let's record it. We recorded that was done. You know, all it all was done in a day. You know, right on, son. Boom, boom, boom. Just one take. Yeah, that's it. Or two takes. Great. Yeah, love it. Put a solo on that. It's done. And in the, in the end, it was just me and Mossy left uh, in the studio, and so he and I finished off never before. Basically, then, but after that. Uh, Mossy went off and joined Phil and I was left in the studio and I remember coming into the studio going you know, now I've got to mix the album and, and then of course I had to do the running order and I wanted them to be impacting so standing on the outside and the great thing about standing on the outside Steve Presswich is in it with a Phil you know standing on the outside looking oh 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 John Phil yeah. and never before started with a similar John Phil going like that. So when I put the album together, I said, oh, I wonder if I can just edit those both together. And so I edited Standing on the Outside straight on into Never Before. And, and I thought, well, you know, and Standing on the Outside I put up front because it wasn't, to me, the strongest song, but it was a rock song. But if I put a really interesting song that was segued straight into with No Gap, that people had never heard Chisel Sounding like before, it would create something. So, but running orders are huge to me. So everyone was, you know, pretty happy with the results that they heard. And I remember I was standing on a, the back veranda of Warner Brothers and underneath Warner Brothers warehouse. And I was standing there with a guy called Roger Langford, who was a, one of my great mentors. He was a 
marketing manager there. He said, see those trucks coming in there? And I said, yep. He said, they're full of East albums. And you know what, Mark? That album's going to stand the test of time. Very wise words, you know. And uh, I, of course, to me, I just put one foot in front of the other and did my best, you know, and, and to make a record. And the way it went, you know, and then the rest, as they say, is history. All right, there's still more to come. Oh, oh. The next question is, so when did In Excess pop into your wheelhouse? In, into my wheelhouse? Not your wheelhouse, his wheelhouse. What do you mean? Well, you know, you have your wheelhouse where, you, where you're driving the boat. That's called your wheelhouse. Oh, I thought you meant, you know, your fake house and your wheelhouse. No, no. <laughs> you take everything I say so literally sometimes, yeah, I do, don't you? Right. No. The wheelhouse. Yeah, well, that's, that's, that's the, I've listened back to the that's, interview and that's what I asked. I said, you know, when did an excess pop into your wheelhouse? So that's, really? that's where we'll pick up the I next didn't realise you'd ask such an idiotic question. <laughs> really? Well, I must have been nodding off or something well, when you, you said that. You haven't paid attention to a lot about this program if you've missed all my idiotic <laughs> uh, questions. Have we started yet? Yes, we have. Okay. We're about, in fact, we're finished. Oh, really? With well, thanks to Mercot's Driving Excellence, 1300 555576. That's mercots.edu.au. Uh, we're done. Done? I thought we were just getting started. I thought you and me were just, we'd say, that's it. Well, we're, we're just getting started with Mark Opitz in many ways. Right. We have part three coming up, and there may even be a part four. Well, he's got a lot of stories, there's, Kev, well, you know. There's so many on. We haven't even, well, as we haven't touched on in excess yet, we haven't no. touched on a lot of the bands yeah. that he worked with. Haven't even, haven't even walked down the street near them yet. Hardly touched on any of them. And coming soon to this podcast. <laughs> coming soon. Coming soon, eh? All right. Robin Zander from Cheap Trick. Oh, the dream police. Samuel Johnson's going to talk about his new book, which you're in. Yes. Called Dear Mum. He's a lovely bloke. He's doing a, a great job. Fabulous bloke. Yeah. Susie Quattro. Susie Quattro. Susie Q. Yes. And wait for it. All right, I'm waiting. Rocky Burnett. Oh, no. Rocky was good. Rocky was Rocky fantastic. was funny. In the next edition of uh, Life of Brian, some revealing stories about some Australian oh. showbiz Royalty. Rocky does. He just takes the gloves off and starts slapping this person's wholesome head. The real. <laughs> the real. What? Right. Oh, well, because I know who you're talking about, so the I find sl- it more amusing than those who don't know. Well, I'll find out. And the story about Tide of Toe and the Line, the real story. Oh, yeah. About writing Tide of Toe and the Line. That's yeah, coming. That up. was a good story. Yeah. Rocky's, Rocky's not in the best of health these days, but uh, he gave us some time and uh, we, we lapped it up and uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah. And you will on the next edition of the and Life of Brian Potter. Yeah, we've got some ball busting. <laughs> There's a ball busting <laughs> scoop in this one. He loves every Australian. Hang on, what's Except our, for one. Yeah, what's our lawyer's number again? <laughs> Just, I know it's not one. We may need Mercot's driving excellence to get us out of this. one 555 Mark Lane from Mercot's. Get your phone on standby. We may need you to get us out of this. Going to need a fast getaway car. <laughs> we certainly might. Driven <laughs> skillfully. Yes. We don't uh, want no burnout banger. We want somebody <laughs> to still on the Mercot's court. Absolutely. All right. That's coming up on the next Life of Brian podcast. Have a lovely week. And, oh, uh, I will. Take care of yourself. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much, Kevin. Thank you for listening. a complicated man A real good heart but blood on his hands He saved a boy from drowning Out in Avenel Raising from a river like he raised hell